And I'm Sam. Uh, we're from Tongue, and this is our Dead Club podcast. Um, Dead Club is a project that we started in 2018, long before COVID-19 had reared its ugly head. And it's a project uh, where we wanted to explore our culture's relationship to death and dying. And we decided to do a bunch of interviews with people that we admired to get their views on the subject. Um, and Tongue, well, we're a British band. We've been making music together for about the last 15 years. Um, this episode features an interview that Sam recorded with Dr. Catherine Mannix. Yeah, I read a book by uh, Catherine Mannix called With the End in Mind. She's a palliative care physician, and this, this book really opened my eyes to the palliative care world, how important it is, what a huge effect it has on people's lives, and especially on the end of people's lives and I really wanted to speak to her. My conversation with Catherine inspired another sort of theme or tone that runs through the album and that's this idea that life is very precious and it's important how we treat each other and that's just as important at the end of life as it is for the rest of our lives. Catherine Mannix, hello. Hi. It's lovely to meet you and I just want to tell you a little bit about the project, if that's all right, before we start. Mm, please do. So, um, I'm the member of a I'm a member of a band called Tongue, and we decided that our next album is going to be inspired by the subject of death and our culture's relationship to death. And so, before we actually start the writing and recording process, we're we're interviewing people, partly friends and family, but also people who have worked closely with death or who we think might have some interesting perspectives and through the process of doing the research I came across your book which is called With the End in Mind. Now you're a palliative care doctor. So I was for many years. You were yes. a, yeah. Could, could you sort of briefly, it's a wonderful book by the way, I thought, I mean I, I found it very inspiring and moving and informative. Uh, I cried quite a, few, a lot when yeah, I was sorry, reading it. Sorry about that. Well, no, it was really in a good way, I think, a really sort of um, a really good way. But could you just briefly summarise your career in palliative care and how you came to write the book? Sure. Um, I started off thinking I wanted to be a cancer doctor. So after I qualified from medical school, I worked in hospitals in, in medicine and did some exams and went to work in the cancer services in the city where I was working. And then when I got there, what I found was that finding the cure for cancer was mainly drawing graphs and uh, taking blood tests. And it wasn't really so much about being with the patients and the families. And the patients who were not going to get cured just seemed to me to be much more interesting. They were trying to make the most of the time that was left. So I kind of took a sideways turn at that point, probably helped by the fact that um, a, a hospice got built in my city, walking distance from my home, round about the same time as I was making this discovery that 
actually curing cancer wasn't as interesting as helping people who were living with advancing cancer was. Yeah. Um, so I wrote to that hospital really to ask if they might, you know, like a volunteer doctor. But they invited me along to talk about a job and took the courageous, slightly daft decision, perhaps, to offer me a job. Um, and it, in those days, it was called working in a hospice. It wasn't a, a discipline. It didn't have a name. So later on that year, um, the Association for Palliative Medicine, which is what being a medical person in, in hospice care became known as, palliative medicine, that association was formed, so I'm a founder member, which makes me feel very, very old. Mm-hmm. And then I just had the joy of training around hospices and hospitals where I had to knit my own training because there wasn't any. So I just kind of wrote to people who I thought would be inspiring people to work with and went and did some time. I obviously already knew quite a bit of cancer medicine by then, but I went to work uh, in teams who looked after people with heart failure and lungs that didn't work properly. And I spent six months with a psychiatry team. So all sorts of really interesting things, uh, as well as working in hospices. And I spent 30 years in the discipline altogether, and I absolutely loved it. It was an enormously rewarding way of working, working with people in their own homes, working in a couple of different hospices, and then for the last 10 years, mainly working in a big, busy teaching hospital, taking palliative care to the wards where the patients were, rather than having the patients in beds that were run by us. Right, yeah. Um, So like a liaison service, which was really, really interesting. And then I met a family who, you know, not for the first time, were very worried about what was going to happen as their father was dying. And their father was in his 90s, so his children were in their 60s and 70s, and yet they had never talked about what might happen to him. And he'd come into hospital unconscious and there were decisions to be made, And when I asked them about what sorts of things their dad had said he would want, they just got really upset and talked about how they'd never talked about it. And then one of them actually admitted that their dad had tried to talk to him about it, one of the sons, and he said, Dad, you know, don't be so maudlin. Mm -hmm. And then his brother tried to help him to feel better by then, saying, well, actually, Dad asked me if I would do one of those attorney documents where you can appoint somebody to make decisions on your behalf if you're not well enough to do it yourself and he had said you know dad you're going to live forever we don't have to worry about this and luckily the wife the mother of these sons had talked to her her husband about what he wanted and she was able to say he didn't want to be messed around with if he was so sick that he was close to dying he wanted comfort Mm. he wanted his family around him he didn't want medical interventions and so we were able to do that um But that family just stayed with me for the next few weeks and months. I kept thinking, you know, we can't keep doing this one family at a time. That this is a huge public health challenge Mm -hmm. for our nation. That nobody wants to talk about dying. Nobody knows what dying is really like. Everybody's terrified about it. Every time I describe what normal dying is like to a person who's dying they immediately feel so much relieved that they want me to tell their family about it. So when people do know, they're less afraid. 
and just somebody needs to do something about the public understanding of dying. And I just thought, you know, we need good telly, we need good plots and soap operas, we need articles in newspapers that report normal dying. Of course, they're never going to do that. Newspapers report plane crashes, not planes that arrive safely. And they report unusual, horrible deaths, because there always will be a few that are really difficult. But most of them aren't, and nobody knows that. So I decided I'd take early retirement and see whether I could figure out a way of using what I'd learned from 30 years of being at the bedsides of people who were dying to make a bit of a noise in the public space and see whether we could get some message out there on a bigger scale. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, And then there was a series of unusual serendipitous events (laughs) that led to writing the book. It's a very successful book. I don't mean it's... Um, I mean, it has been very successful, hasn't it? It's doing really well. It's, Lots of people are reading it's, it. It's astonished me. I didn't yeah. expect any of this. It's, it's wonderful, and that, but that's not quite what I meant. I, I, it's, um, it really makes the point really effectively that we should be talking about this war. And I think this is why we, as a band, are interested in speaking to you. Um, because... It is a really difficult subject to speak about, and I've, I, in the process of, read, I've read your book and I've been interviewing some other people and reading some other books, and so I've, I've really started engaging with this and realizing that oh, this is something I need to talk about a bit more. But but when I've tried, I've tried to instigate a couple of conversations with people in my life, and um, hasn't really gone very well. You know, the mm. one person has really closed it down very quickly. And, said it's not this isn't something it's not appropriate to talk about this and the other person got quite worried about me about me they thought perhaps I was suicidal or depressed because I was talking about death as a subject interesting yeah really really interesting and um I I find the opposite is true you know your book is very it's got some very I guess difficult stories in there but and and I said it made me cry but I wasn't crying at the sad bits so much. It, what I think the bits that really affected me emotionally were there are lots of moments in the book where you describe somebody's story and there's a moment of honesty and connection and opening up about the reality and the pain of the situation. And that I found really emotional for some reason. So if, as often I think is the case, if I'm experiencing this deep bit of myself that wants to be open and honest about this. Probably a lot of other people are, aren't they? And that this is what you're finding. That's right? absolutely what I'm finding. So the the uh, post bag as a result of this has been absolutely astonishing to the point of a little bit overwhelming, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, people finding me through all sorts of different ways, letters and social media and through the publishers and through my agent. And you see, there's a sentence I never thought I was ever going to see. And wanting to tell their stories, needing to tell their stories, and realising that actually here's a space I can tell the story in. So I I recognise now, particularly on social media, there's this really interesting, kind community of people who are interested in dying and death and bereavement who do use stories and who tell each other their stories and who listen to each other's stories and who comment on each other's stories. 
And I'm starting to realise that actually part of the reason the book has been so successful is because it's only stories. Yeah, yeah. It's not written to be clever. It's not written to be a textbook. What I set out to do was think about, you know, when my grandmother was growing up, so she was born in 1900. She was the same age as the year all the way through the 20th century. Okay. Um, She spent the first half of her life with the kind of familiarity with death and dying that people had had in the 19th century as well. So, Mm. you know, by the time she was in her early 30s, her parents had died. Uh, Some of her siblings had died. Her husband had died. One of her children had died. She was familiar with death, not because she was unusual, but because that was how the life was for people before we had easy access to antibiotics, good anaesthetics, and national health service, all of those sorts of things. So when she was 48, in 1948, she was already getting towards the end of the life expectancy for girls who were born in 1900. Yeah, yeah. So when she was reflecting on that just before her 97th birthday with me, you know, one of the things that had really surprised her during her life was um, seeing men walk on the moon. Yeah. But one of the things that had really surprised her in her life was the fact that she was still alive in her 90s. Mm, okay. And so the second half of her life was lived with the National Health Service and all of those medical advances that we made. And what that meant was that instead of people being so sick that they could die and they couldn't be saved, so they would be at home with their family around them, looking after them, as she had with her family, Yeah, they went to hospital because they might be saved and very often they were saved. Yeah, yeah. But it meant that dying stopped happening at home. So then I realised that the next generation, my grandmother's children, my mum, her sister, her two brothers, had no experience of people dying at home. They didn't mm. remember their dad dying. They didn't remember their brother dying. And then nobody else significant had died where they would have been involved in caring for them. In the space of a single generation, Britain forgot what dying looked like. Yes, yeah. And at the same time, in the space of a medical generation, dying went from a thing where doctors said, I'm really sorry, over the next 24 hours, we're going to see whether this child with this fever is going to live or die to being people who said your child is so sick from this fever that he has to come into hospital, he has to be on a ventilator, it's going to be really invasive, but we will almost certainly save his life. Mm. And then if we didn't save the life, that was a medical failure, not just a consequence of being too ill to save. So the public forgot about normal dying, and medicine kidnapped dying, took it into hospitals and then judged it to be a failure if it happened. Yeah. So now we've got two lots of people. One lot doesn't want to talk about it because they've only ever seen it surrounded by machines and horror in hospital. And then the people who serve them, the people who are in the health services, doctors and nurses, seeing it as a thing to be avoided at all costs because it's somehow a fault of theirs if a person dies. So we just completely lost touch with dying just being the end of breathing at the end of somebody's life. Yeah. I'm really interested in 
engaging with this subject and I, I want to talk to my relatives and friends. I want to know what, you know, what their fears are and how I might be able to support them. But I find myself a bit stuck for a set of words or phrases or mm. I feel like there's no, I don't have a sort of cultural resource to go to. I feel like the only, the closest thing to a cultural resource from my life is when I was at school and there was sort of, used to go to church and the vicar would come into school and give talks about kind of um, death from a religious perspective. Mm. Um, but because I don't really share that religious perspective, um, not, I don't quite know what to say. I mean, something you talk about in the book is we don't say the words death or dying anymore. Mm. And I, how do we sort of learn to talk to each other about this? That's a really good question, isn't it? And, and I have to tell you, I don't know the answer, mm. but I'm very interested in, in mulling it over and chewing it through a little bit. So one of the things that I think is, is really prevalent is that we worry about talking about things that will upset each other. Mm. So we avoid talking about them as though not talking about them will prevent us being upset. And then you end up like this family in the hospital where having never talked about it, it's now the most upsetting situation of all because he shouldn't have come into the hospital, that guy. Yeah. Somebody should have been able to say at home to the wife, your husband is so sick that he's going to die, at which point she could have said, OK, we've talked about this. He wouldn't want to go into hospital. But because nobody had that conversation, there they all were. There's a... There's a um... Uh, there's a story in your book which starts out really heartbreaking but actually ends ends up being a really good story because you, you're there in the story to support this couple but it's the one about Joe and Nellie who oh. are an elderly couple and she's she's dying of cancer and um, she hasn't, you know, the doctors have told Nellie months ago that she's dying but she hasn't told her husband Joe mm. because she just doesn't know how to tell him. And meanwhile, he's obviously had a conversation with the doctor at some point, and he knows that she's dying, but she think, he thinks she doesn't know and doesn't, doesn't think she'd be able to handle this news. So you arrive at the house, and he's telling you, you know, you, you must not say anything. She doesn't know. And then yeah. you speak to her, and she's saying, he doesn't know, I don't know how to tell him. And they've been really suffering just tremendously on a sort of emotional level for months because... They really feel that just by talk, telling the other person, you know, they'll be so heartbroken yeah. they won't be able to go on. And look, I mean, luckily you're there to help them negotiate this but it's, sort of It's truth. a story about love, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's it really It's a story is. about love. And I think that people will move mountains when they love each other to save each other distress. So mm. Joe didn't mind carrying the secret. Mm. And yet... He was in a lonely place because he was carrying the secret. And clearly she was carrying the secret to protect him as well. And I think that, you know, I've met lots and lots of families in this situation. And they say to me, you, you mustn't tell him, you mustn't tell her. The shock would kill them. Um, we know them better than you do. We know that they couldn't take it. And of course they know that person better than I do. Yeah. And they might be right. So I think my first rule of thumb is to make no assumptions and go in to find out, not go in with an idea in my head that, oh, I'm going to sort this out. That That's absolutely not the way to go in. I think that 
one of the things that I've found really useful through the years and that people who want to talk about this kind of thing with their families might find really useful is to ask more questions than you actually make statements. Because when you ask a question, the person can decide what to give you in yeah. response. Um, so I can't remember exactly now what I said um, to Nellie in the in the bedroom, but part, part of the difficulty was she was desperate to talk to somebody. She kept sending him downstairs to get, you know, a pot of tea, and he came back and he hadn't got biscuits, so she sent him out of the room again. And each time he left the room, she told me a bit more about how worried she was yeah. about him and, yeah. and, and how were they going to deal with things. Um, and, in fact, what I did was ask a question about how they dealt with things in the past. Yeah. And then she told me about their son who'd been killed in a mining accident. Mm. And how hard it was to never hear anybody use his name anymore. And bereaved people talk about this all the time, that nobody wants to upset them, so they never mention the dead person's name. Yeah. And actually, they love it when somebody mentions the person's name. Yes, yeah. So because she started talking about her son and how much she missed him and how well she and Joe had worked as a team yeah. to deal with the family's bereavement of this precious son. She was in tears when he got back into the room. So then I thought he was going to hit me because he immediately assumed that I'd said something that I wasn't supposed to say, when in fact all I'd done was ask a question. Yeah, it's done very, very skillfully. I mean, I think it's um, it's a real inspiration to read the stories and and sort of become aware that this is something we can become more skillful mm. at. Um I found that a lot, a lot through the through the book. Um, yeah, I wonder whether one of the ways into conversations about dying, uh, you know, it's different for me. I'm there as a doctor. Yeah. I'm there as a person who's a palliative care practitioner. Most people know that if you come from the hospice, it's not likely to be excellent news. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so that's a little bit different. But you know, if I'm sitting in the living room with my cousin or I'm out at the pub with my bestie, that's quite different, isn't it? Mm. And I wonder whether one of the um, the questions that we could use to get ourselves into the discussion of dying and death is, you know, over that pint with a pal to say, isn't it funny how um, people really don't want to talk about dying? What, what do you think that might be about? Yes, yeah. Because probably what they'll tell you is why they don't want to talk about it. Yes. And we can just carry on asking questions. Yes. What is it about that that, you know, is there anything about that that makes you feel uncomfortable? Is there anything about that that makes you feel a bit hopeful? If it could be different from that, how would you like it to be? And although you're dancing around the subject, you are actually discussing your views about it. Yeah, I love this idea about asking questions, actually. Um it, it feels like we do you think perhaps culturally we're sort of because perhaps we go to school where we we you know we have to be taught that a equals a and b equals b and we have to learn a sort of set of things and there's always a right answer for for much of mm. much of our education that we struggle a bit with this idea that actually a lot of things in life are very much within a gray area and um and also when you when things are very black and white, there's quite a high 
possibility that you're going to end up on one side of the fence, yeah. you know, with one certain opinion and opposing someone with a with a different opinion. Whereas that, in actual fact, if you're asking somebody questions, you might discover more about their point of view and actually learn more yourself, as opposed to both you getting in a kind of slightly ego, fixed yeah. your ego, oppositional kind of place where no one's really listening to anybody. I think that's really, really astute observation and in fact that when I was working out how to tell the stories the idea that I had in my head which I've subsequently discovered is a thing called the voice but because I'm not a writer I didn't know any of that stuff I just kind of blundered into this right, okay. uh, was the idea that I'm sitting on a long sofa and I'm going to say to the reader right you can sit here next to me Okay, so we're facing the same way and we're going to be looking at this situation over here together. Mm-hmm. And that also avoids some of that um, face-to-face eye contact awkwardness. Now, you know when you go on communication skills courses, they tell you all about keeping eye contact. Right, yeah. Well, actually, the longer you keep eye contact with somebody, the more awkward it feels. <laughs> yes. And anybody who's ever had... A serious car journey conversation. Well, I was just no, thinking about car journeys. You duties, really yeah. don't need eye contact to no. have a really serious conversations. Because they really, car journeys really do seem to bring out deep, meaningful conversations, mm. don't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that the idea, rather that we're eyeballing each other across mm. the table with our pints in the middle, yes, yeah. that we kind of shift the chairs slightly. And I do actually move the chairs when I'm setting up to talk to families, for example, in my clinic. Okay. I would make sure that the chairs were kind of at right angles to each other. Yeah. So we can look at each other, but we can gaze away into space straight ahead of us and we're not looking into somebody else's personal I love, space. I love this. You know what this makes me think of? So I, I've, um, I spent quite a few years working as a, a teaching assistant in a pretty challenging primary school with some behaviour issues. And I, I'm I'm pretty sensitive, kind of at times fragile kind of mm-hmm. kind of guy and uh, it, I was like it was an absolute trial by fire this this job and um so initially I struggled immensely with the behavior management and all the advice I was given was all along the lines of we well, just got to find your inner strength you just got to just got to use your common sense you just and it was so unhelpful mm. and what I love about I think this is a similar thing you know talking about dying that for me was a situation that put me in basically put me in fight or flight there you know? mm. and I, I think these come because you know I've well my, I can only really talk for myself but having tried to raise this subject with a couple of people I can say I kind of was in fight or flight when I was trying to speak to them because I was really nervous I was worried I was going to say something wrong or upset them and I th- I think people sometimes have a similar attitude about this subject, as if you people have just got to sort of magically know what to say, use your common sense, mm-hmm. understand this intuitively, how you speak to people about this. But you just said something very practical and concrete. You know, it, it's helpful sometimes to sit next to each other instead. And I mm-hmm. bet there are loads of little things like that. Um, ask questions instead of make statements. You know, that's two things... I feel are going to help me so much. And, um, yeah, I feel we have so much to learn from people like you. It's, um, it's, uh, it's valuable, I think. Um, there was what, there was another thing, and this isn't so much as a, a strategy, but it's, um, you know, in your book, you mention, you talk about the death rattle mm. and you say that the death rattle, which is, could you just explain what the death rattle is? So, 
when we're getting towards the very, very end of our lives, uh, we gradually become more and more deeply unconscious. So the first comforting thing to explain to people is that that's not the same as falling asleep. Because I mean, a lot of people have been told you won't be awake at the moment that you die. Mm -hmm. And they've interpreted that as you'll be asleep. So now they're terrified to go to sleep. So that's the first really important thing. It's not the same as going to sleep. Um, As people become more weary, as dying is approaching, they need more sleep. Sleep actually is really important for recharging their energy batteries. And if you're well enough to feel sleepy enough to want to snooze, Mm -hmm. you're well enough to wake up again. So you can just give in, relax, have a snooze. You'll be very dull and you'll be asleep a lot of the time, but when you're awake, you'll have a bit more energy. So it's quite important. During those snoozes, though, people are coming in and out of unconsciousness. And we only know that because we can't wake them up if it's medicine time or, you know, Auntie Mary phones from Australia or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, When they wake up, they say they've had a nice sleep. So human beings don't know when they become unconscious. We just don't know when we've lost consciousness. That's why it's called unconscious, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the person is just unconscious and becoming more and more deeply unconscious all the time. And the last bit of the brain that's still working is the bit that works the breathing. Yeah. Um, And that's just a kind of reflex cycle that goes in and out, in and out, starts off slow and gets faster and faster and faster, or starts off fast and then gets slower and slower and slower. Then there are pauses, and then sometimes you think it's been the last breath, and then they start again and they go through that whole cycle again first deep then shallow first fast then slow whatever their particular pattern is but because they're unconscious they stop noticing that really sensitive area at the back of their throat so you know we're sitting here now with a cup of tea and we know that if we were to swallow that tea down the wrong way as soon as the tea touched the bit of the throat that's intended for breathing and not swallowing yeah we would start to cough, we'd gag, we'd splutter, we would swallow like mad, we'd try to get rid of that cup of tea. So what happens is people are lying usually on their back mm-hmm. when they're unconscious, and by gravity, bits of saliva or bits of phlegm from the lungs or maybe the fluid that we're using to keep people's mouths fresh just runs to the back of the throat. It's only a tiny little layer of liquid. Yeah. But because they're still breathing the breath is forming bubbles as it goes backwards and forwards through that film of liquid. And we never hear that Mm. ever anywhere else because unconscious people usually are put in a recovery position. You know, if you find somebody unconscious in the street, first aiders get taught to put them in a position that protects their airway. So we tip them forwards. Or they are in an intensive care unit, they've got a tube down their throat, so the air is coming through the tube, it's not bubbling through the liquid. So we never hear that weird noise, except when we've got somebody who is deeply unconscious, so unconscious that they can't feel that really sensitive bit of their throat, and they're just tolerating that little bit of fluid sitting there. Yeah. So the noise is really disconcerting. But it's a really important sign to be able to explain to the family around the person that this sign, this noise is a sign that they're very deeply unconscious, that the fluid that's at the back of their throat isn't bothering them. Don't let, you know, let's just watch together for a while and see, are they trying to cough? Are they gagging? Are they trying to swallow? They, no, they're not doing any of those things because they can't even feel it. Yeah. 
And so that noise tells me that this person isn't distressed. This person is beyond the point of feeling distress, in fact, yeah. deeply unconscious. Um, but if you've never heard the noise before, it's very, very odd. Mm. And if you have heard the noise before and you haven't realised what it is, then it sounds as though there's a lot of fluid. So I meet a lot of people who think that they've watched somebody drown in the fluid, you know, their, their lungs filled with fluid until they were bubbling. Well, actually, that, that bubbling is just a little bit of film at the back of your throat. Yeah, that is essentially what I thought, actually. Mm. I think and, um, I feel... I feel so lucky that I read your book and that I know that because I, I can imagine it being very distressing to be in that situation mm. as as a, as a observing a loved one and not to know that. Well, one of the things that's been really interesting to me from the book is, you know, very early on there's a story where I first heard a very senior, experienced hospice doctor explaining the sequence of events as somebody's dying to a mm. patient. And I'm this young doctor, I've been qualified four years, I've worked in the cancer centre, I've seen lots of people dying. But the idea that you would explain what dying was like to a patient just horrified me. So I'm sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, he's got to stop, this is absolutely terrible, this is awful, how can he possibly do this? And the only person who's uncomfortable in this conversation is me. (laughs) The patient is sitting up higher and higher, locking her gaze on his absolutely mm. fascinated by yeah. what he's saying that's a wonderful bit you know and she was kind of stroking his hand and you know really appreciating being given this information so it taught me a whole load about how important it is to describe it and so the book starts off with that description from him as he gave it as I first heard it and then repeats it several times in the next few stories, just till whoever's reading the book has really got that pattern clear. Mm-mm. And then we can go on and talk about other stuff that's actually a lot more interesting than than that. Yeah. But what's happened is people read the book and they review the death of somebody that they loved where they heard the death rattle or they heard the throat not being fully relaxed but you're too unconscious to know. Mm. making a noise like a breath, like a like a voice sound as you're breathing out. Yeah. And they've thought that that person was sighing or groaning or uncomfortable. Um, and then they've heard that bubbling noise and they thought they were drowning. So they've gone away from that death thinking that they've witnessed awful suffering. Mm. And then they've read this book and they've read this kind of description of increasing unconsciousness and gone, oh, well, hang on. This is exactly what I saw. This is what the messages almost always say. This is exactly what I saw. You've described to a T how my mother died. Mm. You know, I, I was with my husband and I heard all of those noises you described. I thought he was in agony. And I now realise he was deeply unconscious. Somebody mm. said to me a couple of weeks ago in a, in a, a message through social media, I realised that my mum had a Hilton five-star death now but it's taken me five years of agony to discover that. Oh, yeah. I just think, we've got to be talking about this. Yeah. This has got to be public knowledge. I mean, you're just if anyone's listening to this, your, your Twitter feed is fantastic, actually, for because you do reply to, to people and questions on there, and there are lots of... There's lots of just moments of very practical, really good advice um, on there. So I really, I really recommend that. And thank you for, you know, putting that information out there. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, about a subject which I think is a, a huge subject, but um, 
you kindly picked up from the station earlier and we've, we've spoken about it a little bit since then and what I've really liked about the way you've spoken about this and other things, we touched on it earlier, is this idea of grey areas and some things in life are very, very complex and different in every single individual situation and mm-hmm. so I want to talk a little bit about euthanasia. Mm-hmm. So I, I've really since I first engaged with the subject um, at school being I would say I'm pro-euthanasia completely believe that um, we should definitely have the choice to end our life if we wanted to and, and I think I felt it was relatively simple in, in some ways and having read your book I've realised oh this is, this is a far more complex issue than I perhaps realised and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the the way you see it. Um, would, you be, would you be happy to do that? Well, I, I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah, OK, thank go. you. So I guess, first of all, it's not a book about euthanasia, but you couldn't no. write a book about dying and ignore the fact that there are parts of the world where assistance in medical assistance in dying is now legal. Um, and clearly I've got no direct experience of it because it hasn't been legal in my practice lifetime here in the UK. Um, There's a lot of noise in a debate around assisted dying. And the noise generally isn't helpful. Mm. So there are very strong opinions from people who oppose legalisation and there are equally strong opinions from people who are passionate advocates of legalisation and almost always those very strong opinions have been forged through some really difficult personal experience by people. So they're speaking with passion and they're often speaking from hurt and from bereavement or anger or fear. So that makes it really difficult to engage in a nuanced discussion with anybody about anything, whether that's, you know, the Brexit debate or uh, human rights or whether or not we should be taking green credentials and saving the planet. And I I think this is another one of those Mm. polarising discussions. So I think... I see it a little bit like this, that first of all, I don't have an ideological view on this. And I'm very keen that people who do want to form a view, form their view from a really good understanding of what normal dying is like, uh, rather than from an assumption that it's either always rosy or from an assumption that it's always terrible. Mm. Let's come into this grey area of what it's really like, about that funny breathing and the noises and the sadness of the people around you and the sense of not having control and the possibility of good symptom control. So good things and bad things are are all in that room at Mm. the same time. And so one of the things that I really appreciate, and I've noticed it particularly in the, the social media community, is that although there are some very strident voices on both sides, there are also people who've worked very closely with people with serious long-term conditions 
or they've worked with people at the very end of their lives or they work in care homes, some of whom have a view that if all things were equal, legalising assisted dying would be a good thing to do. Yeah. And some of whom form a view that if all things were equal, the complications of ensuring the safety and the rigour around monitoring assisted dying make it so complicated that probably changing the law isn't the right thing to do. Yeah. But if you go back to that kind of tennis court analogy before, you've got these very loud voices speaking from the baselines, yelling at each other. Uh, they're not listening. They're only serving. They're those, like, you know, 120-mile-an-hour men's Wimbledon final services. And then much, much closer to the net are the people who are playing a much more subtle game. Yeah. Where they understand the nuances, where they see the day-to-day difficulties of living in a, in a way that's extremely vulnerable, and they yeah. see the day-to-day difficulties of living in a way that's extremely precious, mm. and that actually for some people on one day this might be a good decision, and yet for the same people on a different day, a different decision might be the right decision. Yeah, yeah. And so although many of them will take a view either for or against legalisation of assistance in dying, about which they disagree with each other, so they're on different sides of the net, their conversation with each other is much more knowledgeable, wise, nuanced. Mm. It's true conversation. They're listening as well as speaking. They're exchanging views. Some of them change from one side of the net to the other. And maybe back again, because actually, I don't think that there is a right answer. Yeah, yeah. There's a position that the law has to either permit or not permit. And whichever way the law sits, one group of people will be advantaged by it and a different group of people will be disadvantaged by it. And at the moment, the people who are disadvantaged probably are not dying people. Probably are people who are living with no prospect of being rescued soon by death. Mm. a horrible life that they're no longer enjoying. Mm. And if the law were to be changed, those people could be rescued. Mm. And a different group of people then would become vulnerable to the wondering of whether or not it's right for me to continue to be alive when it's such a pressure for my family and yeah. I, you know, my nursing home fees are eat, eating up everything I would have liked to have leave to my children and those sorts of things. And that's an equally important concern in the other direction. So after 30 years of sitting, listening at the bedsides of the dying, I think I've reached the point of saying I actually don't know what is the right thing. I'm not prepared to take sides because actually I think there's something much more important, which is that whether we legalise euthanasia in this country or not, everybody is going to die. Everybody should have the best possible death. And we've progressed midwifery in leaps and bounds by women knowing what good birth care and good maternity services should look like Mm. and demanding them. And I think we need to know what good end-of-life care should look like and what excellence in the care of the dying should look like and demand that, whatever the law says about euthanasia. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful idea and and, I hope... Anyone who's not read your book will go out and do so. I feel like it's almost every household should should be sent one. You know, it's a really, it's a really, it's a really great um, 
great the way you're talking about this subject and yeah it's been lovely to speak to you I think that's probably a good a good place to stop but uh, yeah thank you very much for your time well, thank you very much thank you My name's Phil Frontung. Uh It's a pleasure to be here. Probably like to start with, you know, when we're in the van and Sam announces he wants to do a record about death. I can remember my own personal reaction because I thought it'd be really complicated and uh, stressful in in a sort of in my own personal world because I've experienced several deaths that still affect me. I think everybody has a right to explore anything, and I think particularly songwriters, poets, artists should be exploring this. So you know, obviously, I would never stop anybody doing that. But it, you know, on the flip flop of that. It, you know you're going to have to go through a few things if you're going to be involved in a project like that. I totally feel connected to Sam's lyrics because it's a page that's been turned that I've never been in that book. In a way, it's, it's, it's an eye-opener to something that I really not thought about in an uh, in a sort of sharing sense I've thought about a lot internally and I think you know maybe that that could help people who who do have their internal experiences of bereavement grief logistics of someone getting out of your life too early or right at the right time if there is a right time no I don't feel afraid of death because I've been lucky and I could have died several times before in my life so and I'm over 50 I think really over 50 everything's a bonus Thanks so much for listening. Still to come this series are interviews with Alanda Botan and Speech to Bell. And earlier on in the series, we spoke to Max Porter, Darren Brown, Kevin Young, Dame Sue Black and AC Grayling. So make sure you check those out. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dead Club podcast on Apple, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.